Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, April 30th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Experts urge for a pause on training AI systems more powerful than GPT-4. China warns of retaliation if Taiwan's president meets with the U.S. House Speaker. Zelensky warns against a possible reversal of U.S. support. Kamala Harris speaks in Ghana. A U.S. House committee subpoenas the State Department over an Afghanistan cable. The New York Trump grand jury will reportedly take a weeks-long break. A new report finds TikTok's popularity is growing among British children. The Guardian apologizes for its founders' links to transatlantic slavery. The World Health Organization considers adding obesity drugs to its essential medicines list. Italy introduces a bill to ban lab-grown meat. In our top story, experts urge for a pause on training AI systems more powerful than GPT-4. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Forbes, New York Post, and Tech's Explorer. In an open letter issued by the Future of Life Institute, artificial intelligence or AI experts, including SpaceX and Tesla CEO Elon Musk, Stability AI CEO Imad Mostak and Google researchers have called for a six-month pause in developing systems more powerful than OpenAI's newly launched GPT-4. The Future of Life Institute is a nonprofit that focuses on steering transformative technology towards benefiting life and away from extreme large-scale risks. In the letter, more than 1,000 experts say they believe the pause should take place until proper safety protocols have been developed and vetted by independent experts. They also call for new regulators dedicated to tracking AI, provenance, and watermarking systems to help distinguish real from synthetic and track model leaks, and a robust auditing and certification ecosystem. The letter cites OpenAI founder Sam Altman's own blog, in which he stated that at some point, it may be important to get independent review before starting to train future systems. In response, the letter said, We agree. That point is now. This letter comes amid rumors that Musk, an early investor in OpenAI and current funder of the Future of Life Institute, is exploring developing a rival to ChatGBT. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts. Here on the Improve the News podcast, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. I'm going to start off our first round of narrative spins with the narrative A from Medium. It's time to take a breather as we figure out the best way to live peacefully with and avoid some of the pitfalls of this rapidly advancing technology. Just as other technology has safety measures in place, we need similar rules for AI. Narrative B comes from Forbes. Musk isn't afraid of what AI technology will do. He's just concerned he'll lose the race to develop the best and most profitable AI systems in the world. He left OpenAI over a power struggle, and Musk's motives for participating in this letter are purely business. And from time to time, we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends over at the Metaculous Prediction community. They have one here that says there's a 55% chance that there will be a positive transition to a world with radically smarter-than-human artificial intelligence. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. 
China warns against Taiwan president meeting with McCarthy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, Wall Street Journal, and NBC. On Wednesday, China warned against Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen meeting with U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, the Republican from California, during her tour of allied countries in the Americas, saying it would be another provocation that seriously violates the One China principle. Under the One China policy, the U.S. acknowledges China's claims of sovereignty over Taiwan, but recognizes the island's status as unresolved. Beijing's warning comes as Taiwan's president began a state visit to Guatemala and Belize, which will see her pass through New York on Wednesday and California on her return, where she's expected to meet with McCarthy, although this has yet to be officially confirmed. Despite the warning, Tsai vowed to act as she sees fit, adding that Taiwan will soundly walk along the path of freedom and democracy to go global. This comes as Honduras recently switched diplomatic ties from Taiwan to China, leaving the island nation with 13 formal diplomatic ties, including Guatemala and Belize. Meanwhile, size U.S. transit, her first since 2019, comes amid tense U.S.-Sino relations, and as size predecessor, Ma Yingyao, is currently visiting China. Following former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's August 2022 visit to Taiwan, China launched live-fire military exercises near the island. However, there have reportedly been no changes in Beijing's military activities in the region this week. Thank you, Adam. Our first spin for this story is an anti-China narrative, coming from The Hill. Tsai is simply passing through the U.S., and her so-called trip is an unofficial visit consistent with U.S.-Taiwan relations. Any tension or military conflict caused by Tsai's visit would be an outlandish escalation on China's part. And there's also a pro-China narrative provided by Global Times. China has made its case to the U.S. about why meeting with Tsai could be a provocation, and if the two countries go through with it, they'll be risking the lives and well-being of the people of Taiwan and undermining the one-China policy. This trip Posturing as an innocent transiting through shouldn't happen. And the Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 68% chance that the U.S. would respond with military force if China invades Taiwan before 2035. In our next story, Zelensky warns against a possible reversal of U.S. support. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press. Institute for the Study of War, and Yahoo News. In an exclusive interview with the Associated Press, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warned on Tuesday that the potential shift of political forces in Washington, particularly in light of the 2024 elections, could have drastic consequences for Ukraine if support for intervention in the country were to run dry. Zelensky did not mention the current Republican frontrunners, former President Donald Trump, or Florida Governor Ron DeSantis by name, but said, quote, the United States really understands that if they stop helping us, we will not win. Both Trump and DeSantis have made statements questioning long-term support for Ukraine, though DeSantis walked back his comments after criticism from elements within his party. Zelensky also outlined why he viewed the continued defense of the Donetsk city of Bakhmut important despite large military losses and claims from some analysts that it's not strategically significant. He said that, should Moscow's forces seize the city, 
Russian President Vladimir Putin would sell this victory to the West, to his society, to China, to Iran. The Ukrainian leader also said losing Bakhmut would have a political cost, including prompting members of the international community and his own population to call for settlement talks with Russia. He says, our society will feel tired, adding, our society will push me to have to compromise with them. In his latest assessment, the Institute for the Study of War, a U.S. military think tank, said that pro-Russia forces have continued to gain ground in Bakhmut over the past week, stating, ISW assesses that Russian forces have advanced into an additional 5% of Bakhmut in the last seven days and that they currently occupy roughly 65% of the city. Elsewhere, Rafael Grassi, head of the UN's International Atomic Energy Agency, made his second wartime visit to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant on Wednesday. Grassi held a meeting with Zelensky earlier in the week, where he warned the situation at the plant remained very dangerous, adding that he and his team were still negotiating a deal between Russia and Ukraine to secure a safe zone around the site. Thank you, Eric. We have a few narrative spins for this story. Narrative A is provided by Responsible Statecraft. As of last month, an APNORC poll suggests that less than half of the U.S. population supported providing U.S. weapons to Ukraine. It was one of many indicators that public support is gradually eroding from all aspects of the Biden administration's Ukraine policy. Developing war weariness among the public is a commonly repeated trend previously seen towards conflicts in South Korea, Vietnam, and Afghanistan. President Biden should tread carefully, as electoral victory for the Democrats may soon rely on him reneging on his pledge to support Kyiv for as long as it takes. Washington Post gives us Narrative B. Despite the shift in GOP attitudes concerning the conflict in Ukraine, which appears to indicate a veering towards unfettered isolationism, the 2024 election is a long way off, and there is very little the Trump-DeSantis factions can currently do to affect military spending. In addition, Western intervention can continue even without support from inside the White House. Through initiatives such as the IMF's recently announced $16 billion loan package to help rebuild the Ukrainian economy, U.S. and Western support for Kyiv will remain stalwart. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion on this story. They say there's a 50% chance that the U.S. will provide Ukraine with any fighter aircraft by December 20th, 2023. Kamala Harris speaks in Ghana as part of her African tour. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Quartz, The Hill, Reuters, Associated Press, and CNN. On Wednesday, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris visited Ghana on her first stop on an African tour that also includes Tanzania and Zambia. She delivered a speech on women's empowerment and the importance of Africa to the world to thousands of young Ghanaians in Accra. This week-long trip to Africa is part of Washington's diplomatic push to counter efforts made by Russia and China in the continent. The two American rivals have invested billions and the U.S. is looking to strengthen its relationship with multiple African countries. On Wednesday, Harris unveiled a $1 billion initiative to promote women's economic empowerment. Before departing, Harris was set to host a roundtable in Ghana with female entrepreneurs. This comes a day after she detailed an American initiative to help Africans to address gender disparities and to invest in regional creativity. 
On Tuesday, she visited the colonial-era Cape Coast Castle seaside port, where many slaves were held before sailing to the Americas. Her intent was to confront and remember painful history, while also envisioning a future driven by African innovation. The location was visited by former President Barack Obama in 2009 and has become a prime location when Western leaders visit West Africa to similarly speak out against the history of slavery and portray an optimistic future. Thank you for the facts of that story, Adam. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from PJ Media. Vice President Harris has been left to deliver a compelling message and make empty promises to African leaders despite massive gains by Russia and China across the continent. Beijing has dropped tariffs to allow duty-free imports from several African countries and struck a multi-billionaire deal with Ghana, and Russia likewise is showing increased geopolitical influence. Her visit on behalf of a languishing Biden administration is too little, too late. Republican narratives are typically followed up with a Democratic narrative. Here's one provided by Spectrum News. Harris's visit to Ghana, the first stop on her week-long trip to Africa, was a poignant event that can serve to inspire millions of young Africans, particularly women. The Biden administration is bringing Africa and the U.S. into a new era of partnership by honestly confronting the past and looking to the future. In our next story, the House Committee subpoenas the State Department for an Afghanistan cable. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Associated Press, CBS, USA Today, and NBC. U.S. Representative Michael McCall, Republican of Texas, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, subpoenaed the U.S. Department of State on Tuesday to turn over a cable written by U.S. diplomats serving in Afghanistan before the U.S. withdrawal. McCall said the subpoena became necessary after multiple good-faith attempts were made to have the state turn over the cable and Secretary of State Antony Blinken's response to it were rebuffed. The July 2021 cable was disseminated to Blinken via a special dissent channel, which was a mechanism created in 1971 for state employees to convey alternative or opposing views on foreign policy to their superiors. The cable, which was reportedly written by 23 U.S. officials, could shed light on warnings that the U.S. wasn't prepared for its August 2021 Afghanistan withdrawal, which resulted in a near-immediate takeover of the country by the Taliban. McCall previously offered to review the cable in a secure location or have the names of its signers redacted, but the State Department still refused to turn it over. As far back as August 2021, led then by Chairman Gregory Meeks, Democrat of New York, tried to obtain the cable but failed. The committee renewed its request this January when Republicans took control, and again this month. All right, Eric, we've got a pro-establishment narrative on this story. It's provided by the Washington Post. It would be unprecedented for the State Department to turn over anything it feels is too sensitive for Congress's eyes, and the House has few tools to force compliance with this request. Allowing Congress access to the, quote, dissent line, would have a chilling effect on future correspondence between diplomats and their bosses. Blinken has made many documents available and is more than willing to brief Congress on the cable's contents. But instead, the House has opted to issue a subpoena it can enforce. And the New York Post brings us an establishment-critical narrative. There must be congressional oversight of the State Department, especially when it bungles something as badly as it did the Afghanistan withdrawal. Thirteen service members died because of government incompetence. 
and the American people deserve transparency. Beyond the dissent cable, which can reasonably be reviewed as a redacted version or in a secure location, the State Department should turn over everything the committee has requested so it can get the answers it needs. I bet you there's something probably stupid in the cable. It probably finished with like love Anthony at the end. It and probably it's gonna, it's gonna does. Blow up some big oh, yeah. relationship. Totally. What do you mean by this love, Mr. <laughs> Blinken? <laughs> in a special report, the New York Trump grand jury is going to take a week's long break. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, Washington Post, The Columbian, and Politico. The Manhattan grand jury deciding whether former President Trump should be indicted on campaign finance violations will reportedly be dismissed beginning next week until late April. The hiatus is part of a pre-planned two-week break scheduled for April 10th, the day after Easter, and will continue to include parts of Passover and Ramadan. While jurors may hear other cases over the next week, the soonest they'll hear about Trump again is April 24th. This follows widespread speculation over whether Trump is about to be indicted, spurred by a longtime Trump friend and potential key witness seen leaving the court building and Trump posting on his social media platform that he'd be immediately arrested. Some also thought the jury decision was near after District Attorney Alvin Bragg offered Trump a chance to testify before the panel, which is typically the final step of a criminal investigation. Trump declined the offer. According to Turo Law Center criminal law professor Richard Klein, it's not unusual for jurors to take breaks during holidays, but it's unclear why this panel isn't hearing testimony surrounding the case on some other customary days. The case revolves around a $130,000 payment former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen made to Stormy Daniels, which could be an infringement of campaign funds. Adam, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Red State. Though the going narrative is that this break was, quote, pre-planned, Alvin Bragg has every power to convene the jury whenever he chooses. If he was close to indicting Trump, he would, but he isn't, and is stalling to save face. This alternative theory makes more sense since Trump only gains more political support the longer this witch hunt lags on. As Bragg keeps grasping at straws, the Democrats' chances of jailing Trump grow smaller and smaller. And a Democratic narrative provided by Salon. While this decision is certainly unusual given the jury has already taken a hiatus, it's likely that Bragg is ensuring all his ducks are in a row before an indictment. Trump has been using social media to try and derail his fate for weeks. This is why Bragg is staying calm. He wants to make sure his approach is flawless. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 28% chance that Donald Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before 2030. According to a special report, TikTok's popularity among children grows in Britain. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Telegraph, Independent, Ofcom, New York Times, and Fox News. Britain's media regulator Ofcom has published its annual survey on children's and parents' online attitudes, showing that TikTok's use among UK children increased to 53% of those aged between 3 and 17 in 2022, three points higher than in the prior year. The Children's Media Lives report further revealed that one-quarter of five- to seven-year-olds and nearly one-fifth of three- to four-year-olds are using TikTok, 
with children aged eight or above increasingly preferred split-screen viewing to watch two often unrelated videos at once. The authors stressed that most children turn to social media for information, generally believing that what they see, read, or hear is true without questioning it. The Chinese app, which is used regularly by 17 of the survey's 21 respondents, for an average of two hours a day, continues to be the platform where children spend the most time. The report comes as ByteDance-owned TikTok earlier this month announced a new 60-minute screen time limit per day for every account held by a user under 18. The efficacy of this measure, however, has been questioned as it can be bypassed by entering a password. Meanwhile, across the pond, Utah passed two bills restricting children's access to alleged addictive platforms, with similar proposals being discussed in Arkansas, Louisiana, New Jersey, Ohio, and Texas. Thanks, Eric. Newsweek has providing us with a pro-establishment narrative. It has been widely known that TikTok's data harvesting practices in favor of the Chinese government represent a national security threat, but this platform has an even darker side. While promoting educational clips to children in its Chinese version, TikTok purposely exposes Western children to inappropriate sexual and substance-related content. It's about time that this weaponized app is banned once and for all. An establishment critical narrative comes from Wired. Concerns about the experience of children using TikTok are entirely justifiable, but it's outrageous that the platform has been criticized as if such issues are not common to every other major social media platform. Politicians have been exploiting the most striking fears of parents while failing to address basic, urgent challenges, such as providing food to all school children, in a blatant show of hypocrisy. There's also a nerd narrative that says there's a 30% chance that the U.S. will ban TikTok before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The owner of Guardian apologizes for its founder's links to transatlantic slavery. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Barron's, Independent, Daily Mail, Mirror, and Great Britain News. Owner of the Guardian newspaper, the Scott Trust, released a report on Tuesday apologizing for the role of the publication's founders in the transatlantic slave trade. The Guardian underwent an academic review regarding its origins in the early 19th century. The report, which took two years to complete, concluded that its founder, John Edward Taylor, alongside many of its financial backers, had links to slavery. The report states that it found, quote, significant new facts during the investigation leading it to extend an apology to the communities affected by the historic trade, as well as to the surviving descendants of former slaves. It was discovered that Taylor was a cotton merchant whose father had also worked in the textile industry. In response to the revelations, the Scott Trust announced it would be paying £10 million in reparations as part of a decade-long program of restorative justice. The newspaper is also committed to expanding its reporting on black communities in the UK, US, the Caribbean, South America, and Africa. Moreover, the Scott Trust will reportedly open a new fellowship for mid-career black journalists, as well as expanding its training bursary scheme. The Scott Trust claimed that it was, quote, incumbent on the organization to share the facts of the Guardian's past, quote, transparently and emphasized that more work needs to be done to acknowledge the wider history of Britain's connection to transatlantic slavery. 
All right, those were the facts. Our first spin is a left narrative coming from Al Jazeera. It is high time that compensation be paid by those who profiteered by turning people into merchandise. Europe and the West have an obligation not only to apologize for these wrongs, but to embark on comprehensive social justice programs to counter the long-standing effects of previous atrocities. Apologies are commendable, but pragmatic steps must also be taken. And Spectator is following this up with the right narrative. There are many practical issues with issuing reparations for the grotesque suffering of forebearers. The question of who would qualify is ambiguous. The criteria for quantifying money compensation is subjective, and such decisions are often made at the expense of people who never themselves practiced or endorsed slavery. Clumsily redressing what cannot be righted poses the danger of only making things worse. In our next story, the World Health Organization considers adding obesity drugs to essential medicines list. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Straits Times, Reuters, Daily Mail, and 1450 AM and 99.7 FM WHTC. The World Health Organization is reportedly planning to commence a panel of advisors to review new requests to include weight loss drugs on its essential medicines list which is used as a guide for government purchasing decisions in low- and middle-income countries. The request to consider the drugs, including the active ingredient liraglutide in Novo Nordisk's obesity drug Sazenda, was submitted by three doctors and a researcher in the U.S. More than 750 million adults worldwide are considered obese, triple that of 1975, and another 2.6 billion are considered overweight. In the U.S. alone, 41.9% of adults are obese compared to 30.5% in the late 1990s, leading to a greater risk of heart attacks, strokes, and diabetes. Besides Sazenda, which has been shown to help people lose 5-10% to 10 of their body weight, the request's approval could also give low- and middle-income countries access to Novo Nordisk's injection drug Wagovi, which can reduce weight by up to 15%. As 70% of the world's overweight population live in low- and middle-income countries, some have questioned the drug's affordability. Sazenda costs $450 per month in the U.S. and $150 per month in Europe. Wagovi costs $1,300 a month in the U.S. A panel of advisors to the World Health Organization is expected to review the request next month, with an updated essential medicines list due to be published in September. Eric, we have several spins on this story. Narrative A is provided by Wired. Drugs like Wagovi, among several others, have proven slightly effective in helping people lose weight while leading to diseases like thyroid cancer and eating disorders. The industry has been a money-making scheme since the inception of weight loss surgery 70 years ago. And it seems like these new drugs, which cost upwards of $1,000 or more per month, are Big Pharma's next billion-dollar lie. Narrative B comes from Forbes. Obesity is one of the deadliest diseases in the world, contributing to millions of deaths annually. But we may finally have the solution to this problem. We now see medications that can aid weight loss and reduce the risk of weight-related complications like diabetes. As for cost, it's time for insurance companies and governments to treat obesity similarly to other diseases so people can finally gain access to their life-saving effects. And The Guardian has a narrative C. While weight loss drugs provide a valuable tool to fight against obesity, they don't tackle the root cause. 
more must be done to create a multifaceted approach to preventing obesity in the first place by promoting healthy lifestyles and holding the food industry, which has promoted unhealthy food for years, to account. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 50% chance that at least 71.7% of Americans will be obese or overweight in 2030. Our final story today comes out of Italy, where Maloney's government introduces a bill to ban lab-grown meat. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of India, International Business Times, Reuters, and U.S. News and World Report. Italy is reportedly preparing to approve legislation that would ban the use of laboratory-grown meat in food and animal feed, as the government seeks to protect the country's agri-food heritage. If passed, the Italian agricultural industry would be restricted from producing food or feed from cell cultures or tissues derived from vertebrate animals, with violators facing fines of up to 60,000 euros or 65,000 U.S. dollars. Minister Francesco Lollobrigida, a senior member of Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney's right-wing Brothers of Italy party, has said of the impetus behind the bill, quote, laboratory products, in our opinion, do not guarantee quality, well-being, and the protection of our culture, our tradition. The Maloney government is also pledging to rename the Agriculture Ministry the Ministry of Agriculture and Food Sovereignty. The proposal, which will not apply to food grown in other EU countries, Turkey, or the European Economic Area, comes as Maloney's government prepares a rush of decrees to add information labels to products containing or derived from insects amid an intense debate in Italy over the use of cricket flour. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Narrative A is our first spin for this story, and it's coming from BBC News. There are economic, humanitarian, and health reasons for people to switch to lab-grown and insect-based diets. Eating alternative proteins could lessen our environmental impact on the planet by 80% compared to the current European diet, as it avoids the need to farm livestock or poultry and uses significantly less water to produce. Furthermore, unlike some purely vegetarian or vegan diets, lab-grown and insect-based diets can still be nutrient and protein-rich. And Science Focus has a narrative B. While switching to lab-grown and insect-based protein alternatives has huge potential, these routes shouldn't be uncritically cited as environmental silver bullets. Due to the amount of energy required to produce lab-grown meat, production in its current form could produce more CO2 than the methane currently produced by cows, so it actually risks obstructing decarbonization targets. A systemic switch to these diets would help mitigate climate change only if we also make progress in other areas, especially renewable energy usage. Dietary change needs to be part of a wider environmental plan and infrastructure change to be effective. We have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast. It says there's a 50% chance that at least five cultivated meat products will be approved for sale in the U.S. by May 10th, 2025. That comes from the Metaculous Prediction community. I think this story solves the obesity problem. We just tell to everybody, hey, there's cricket in your flour, and I think they're going to stop eating so much flour. Yeah, they can keep that cricket flour. I am not going to try that stuff. Less people will be making pancakes with cricket flour. Disgusting. Disgusting. 
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, March 30th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.